welcome to this edition of The Technology Bill, a podcast that looks at how technology is reshaping our lives every day and exploring the different ways that governments and companies use tech to increase their power. My name is Caitlin Bishop and I'm Privacy International's Campaigns Officer, though for this episode I'm just swinging past to say hello. In this edition, we're discussing the humanitarian sector's problem with data. Gus is joined by our colleague Alex, PI's Director of Strategy, and Massimo Morelli from the International Committee of the Red Cross. Henceforth, they mostly call it the ICRC. Agencies in the humanitarian sector protect people in the world's most vulnerable situations. They operate in places where data can put people at severe risk, as we've seen only too recently with the fears that access to databases and technology left behind as the US pulled out of Afghanistan and the Taliban took control could put people's lives in danger. And yet, every agency wants to deploy new tech, often in the form of biometrics, as a previous edition of this podcast covered. New databases, new data. For over 10 years now, PI has been trying to get the sector to think differently and to stop this particular madness. Massimo is one of those who does think differently. PI and the ICRC have published reports, worked on guides, hoping that attention might result in change. What's happened in Afghanistan has been horrific, but we're hopeful that maybe this might be the moment for the sector to take a good look at itself and finally change. We all saw what happened in Afghanistan and everybody was shocked and full of horror. And what I wanted most was to hear from you, not about what happened in Afghanistan, but to hear from you both who do such fascinating work that come close to the issues around Afghanistan, data and tech, humanitarian affairs, data and tech, uh, uh, people in vulnerable situations, data and tech. We keep on coming back to these things. And finally, it's in the eyes of everybody around the world. And so I thought we could have a conversation around that. But Massimo, just to you're kind of cool because you're a guest and you work for this really cool institution that everybody knows and that you probably have a uniform, you have helicopters, you jet into places and, and you save people. At least that's what the movie with Angelina Jolie would probably have. Tell us, like, what brought you to this domain into the ICRC and what does your job actually look like from the sexy perspective, the real perspective, and also the, the, the dry data protection perspective? I'm not sure if it's going to be more fun, <laughs> but I'm in charge of the data protection office at the ICRC, the International Committee of the Red Cross. We do all the supervisory role of ensuring the application of the rules on personal data protection, but then we do lots of very exciting other things that I, <laughs> I'm very happy uh, to talk about and look forward to talking about. I have uh, previously uh, in the field with the ICRC for some time and uh, a past in antitrust law. So uh, oh. I can at least say that I finally found a way to bring together a schizophrenic <laughs> profile of humanitarian and regulatory lawyer. The work of the organization is a very important one, a very exciting one, and uh, a fundamental one. The ACRC is an organization that was born over 150 years ago from the initiative of a gentleman that just happened to find himself looking to discuss business with an emperor that at the time was engaged in the wars of independence in the north of Italy in uh, 1859 and found himself actually on uh, the day of a terrifying clash between the Austrian army and the French army on the battlefield of Solferino. 
thousands of people left dying on the battlefield. And his vision was that even wars had to have limits and that, that there was a role to play for an organization to be a neutral, impartial and independent organization with an exclusively humanitarian mandate to work in situations of conflicts and to, to ensure that even wars have limits. So this is the mandate of the organization. And, and obviously, for somebody that was born very close to that Solferino battlefield, it's something that has always been a myth and something that uh, I was fascinated about. And I, I had as a dream in the drawer to see what it means to actually try to do that. And uh, after quite a few years in uh, in antitrust law, uh, first in private practice, and then as a lawyer at the uh, referendaire at the Court of Justice, I thought either I do it now or, or I'll never do it. So in the space of a couple of weeks, I found myself in South Sudan on the border between DRC and Central African Republic, no trying way. to <laughs> trying to find the relatives of unaccompanied minors that had been abducted by the Lord's Resistance Army and uh, managed to escape and trying to uh, work with national societies to uh, reunite them with their family with all the complications that, of course, it involves seeing the circumstances in which they had been abducted. And uh, so, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fascinating work and really having the opportunity to work in the field for an organization like this is an immense privilege because it gives an opportunity to to do something and to do something in the most extreme circumstances and really to see the magic at work, the magic of a neutral organization that is exclusively humanitarian and that it's not just in words but it's at work. Seeing that we could be in Afghanistan living in Kandahar with no armed escorts and no armored vehicle based only on the acceptance of all the parties to the conflict and uh, because of that acceptance and trust in the humanitarian mandate that we have. And I've been probably allowing myself to take a little bit of time to explain this kind of things because this is not just about why I'm so keen and motivated to work for this organization, but it's it really reflects also on the way in which we look at the collection of data and the using of data. In everything that we do, we need to make sure that that neutrality, that exclusively humanitarian nature of our work is reflected, including in the way in which we collect and process data. You've just inspired a generation of antitrust lawyers <laughs> to think that with their background on antitrust, with two weeks of training, they could be sent into a war zone to help people. I think uh, if anything comes out of this edition of the podcast, it might be a, a lot of people shifting their careers as you have. Alex, I was wondering if I could go to you because you've been working at PI for a number of years, but you came to PI with a perspective around helping people in vulnerable situations. And I'm curious... All these years later, you're still working at PI, and something must drive you to continue to butt your head against the challenge of data in this scenario. I mean, I think maybe why I'm still motivated or why there's still a need in a way to continue this work, I think what's infuriating with a lot of the systems that were being rolled out is some of the justifications given for them. Because I think that really goes back to, you know, some of the problems, but also some of the solutions identified by different stakeholders, be it humanitarian organizations, donors, or others. And and the first one is around some of the reasons given for the deployment of these systems. And one of the common ones that we're seeing, not only in the humanitarian sector, but in the work that we're doing on welfare and migration and, and health, one of the justifications 
conversations around accountability, transparency, for example, preventing fraud, and basically ensuring that the money that's being spent and given to people is going to the ones that most need it. And in the welfare sector, there's been a lot of these discussions around, you know, those who who deserve it. And I think what's most frustrating with some of those arguments is when it comes to fraud, a lot of the fraud is actually happening elsewhere in the supply chain, in the bigger picture, in the ecosystem, and not so much at the beneficiary level or at the individual level. But yet, in terms of something that's very practical to do, well, not practical because you are spending huge amounts of money and it takes a lot of time, but it's seen as something very easy to do, which is to fingerprint all of the people that are receiving this support, this assistance, rather than integrating mechanisms of accountability and transparency at other levels, probably higher up where money is misspent, money wasted and poor decision making is happening. So I think that's one of the things that we keep seeing over and over again. And we'll get back to this, I think, a bit later on in the podcast, but we're not really seeing a lot of the lessons learned from what's been happening in over almost a decade, if not more, um, and how that should inform things that are happening now. I think the other things and going back to your framing around, you know, a lot of these systems are exposing people that are already in precarious and vulnerable positions. We're seeing also this double standard because a lot of the things that are being deployed as part of, let's say, aid programs or also in some extent in the humanitarian sector are things that some of the ones that are proposing or funding or promoting some of these systems are things that they would never allow in their own countries to their own citizens or residents. And yet we're willing to expose other individuals who are actually in very vulnerable positions exactly to those risks, to be fingerprinted, to have facial recognition, whatever it might be, this increased process of identification and verification. So yeah, those are things that keep coming up and can be infuriating. But at the same time, they're also what motivates us to keep going because there is a lot of lessons learned and we can hope to to take those um, in different sectors, which is what's been motivating as well our work with the the humanitarian sector is to see how we can be bringing our expertise and our knowledge to inform the decisions that they would make today, but also in the future. And so people who have been listening to this podcast for a while will have heard me rant about the the humanitarian sector and its adoption of data and tech back in essentially the post 9-11 era, and particularly the work I'd done with UNHCR, the Refugee Agency, in 2007, 2010, and how there was just this hunger and this thirst for data and tech without quite understanding why and how. And so, Massimo, I was wondering if you could help update, perhaps. Hopefully, there's a new set of drivers as to why it is there's this quest for data and tech in the humanitarian sector. And to be clear, we're not Luddites. We're not saying there's no room for it, but I'm you know, post 9-11, that the idea was, well, any refugee could potentially be a terrorist. So let's make sure we track them. Let's make sure we fingerprint them. And every refugee could potentially be a fraudster. So let's, if we can, grab their DNA or measure their teeth to verify their age. What is it now that you see that is, is motivating the excitement around data and tech in the humanitarian sector? Those are very powerful drivers by some actors, but I wouldn't really say that they were the driver actually of humanitarian organizations. I think to a large extent, if there was a fault in the humanitarian sector for some time was naivety and being excited about new technologies and not really understanding what those technologies were and how they worked and therefore easily coming under the pressure 
of stakeholders who had those drivers. I can't speak for other organizations, but I, I can definitely speak for mine. And <laughs> I was mentioning the Battle of Solferino over 150 years ago. The drivers have always been exclusively to protect people and to provide them with help and assistance. So to the extent that it had become clear that handling person's information could expose them to harm, integrating principles that are very close to what we call today data protection principles has been really in the operating policies and procedures of the organization for a long time. What has changed and what really perhaps uh, exposed organizations to making difficult and sometimes wrong choices was the fact that new technologies did bring a lot of new complications. The motivation to take up technologies come from different drivers. We mentioned sometimes the enthusiasm for technology for the sake of it, which is one of the negative ones, but we shouldn't really forget that there are some really legitimate drivers for wanting to leverage technology to do more with less as we are pushed to do uh, with growing needs and uh, less capacity to provide aid. And we just mentioned Solferino. We had an army dressed up in red facing an army in blue and uh, they were just confronting each other in uh, the countryside. And it would have been easy for a humanitarian organization to identify who is fighting who, to negotiate access, to discuss, you know, we need to have access to this particular region. Uh, When can we get the sufficient security guarantees? Today, conflicts are much more fragmented. There are so many different stakeholders, splinter groups, and uh, radicalized splinter groups. Who do you talk to in order to negotiate access? How do you talk to them? And really trying to read this kind of dynamics is very important. And there are promises in technology to allow the use of social media data or other sources of data to help you read that environment. So those are promising technologies that could be helpful if properly used. Or we also talk about humanitarian crisis in uh, conflicts that last much longer. We don't no longer have very short confrontations where you can easily just think of going in with a humanitarian response, bringing in food and uh, clothes or medical equipment f- to deal with the wounded. We're actually talking about an average duration of the 10th most significant operations of the ICRC that exceeds 40 years of uh, higher and lower intensity confrontation where humanitarian action more and more overlaps with the protection of social protection systems. And really understanding where the boundaries are becomes very difficult. So the idea of making more effective and efficient in that kind of protracted crisis, the provision of aid does bring into question how can you leverage systems of registration and how you identify people and whether you can use maybe cash programs instead of providing a bag of rice. So there are some of these drivers that bring in questions around the use of biometrics, the use of cash programs. And I think that's where at the beginning, particularly, there was a lot of let's test and fail, let's try. And and it was really thanks to two landmark actions that actually the humanitarian sector started to really realize that it was not as straightforward as that. When the humanitarian sector is testing and failing, it's actually testing and failing on life and death situations, which you're not really allowed to do by any standard, let alone humanitarian standards. So the two landmarks obviously were the work that you have just mentioned and the work that led to the publication of the aiding surveillance report that was a 
an important uh, moment for the humanitarian sector, I think, to realize, perhaps a bit too late, <laughs> because you'd been saying those things for some time, that actually all those concerns in the handling of data that the humanitarian sector has had for a long time required a little bit of fine-tuning and more knowledge and uh, upskilling in order to understand how to apply in a digital era. And the second one was the uh, resolution of the International Conference of Privacy and Data Protection Commissioners in 2015, really highlighting the very significant and specific challenges faced by the humanitarian sector when adopting new technologies. That's incredibly kind of you. I, I, so when PI wrote that report in 20. 12, 2013, it was on the back of the work we'd done with the UN Refugee Agency and our attempts to engage other agencies around these questions because they were deploying new systems. The UNHCR was deploying biometrics and they asked, can you come in and have a look and advise us on what not to do and what to do? And of course, the biometric system they were deploying was facile. They just thought it was terribly clever and every department or every camp across the UNHCR wanted it, even though it had only been deployed in a bar environment in the Netherlands before. So like it never been deployed in any field like environment. But my issue wasn't just with the deployment of biometrics. I wanted to look at the digitization of data when it comes to the registration of refugees. And you, you rightly point, like the very purpose of these types of organizations is to protect. And part of that protection is the collection of data. Part of that protection is registering people to say, yes, you, with the following name, with the backstory of what has happened to you, that makes you internationally recognized as a refugee, and we must record that. And I was questioning the way that they were actually protecting that data as well, but that wasn't a conversation they were willing to have. So that's why we we published that report and kind of left the field for a while until Alex was adamant that we get back into it. And I think in that period of time, things had changed from just the addition of new technology just to rather the fact that data and tech be everywhere now, including like in general operation systems in any country, whether it's social protection, whether it is access to health, your data be there and the protections need to follow. Alex, can you just give us a description of what the current landscape is? Going back to your comment now and, and Massimo's input around aiding surveillance, I, I was looking at it recently and actually some of the main technologies we'd outline are still the main ones, you know, at play today. I think what's important is that it's no longer now just a few individuals who had, you know, the resources 10 years ago, the bigger agencies to start doing this. Now we're seeing even smaller organizations doing this. And and, and it's part of almost every level of their operations, reporting, auditing mechanisms and things like that. Like it's much more embedded, I would say, within the sector than it was when we released aiding surveillance almost 10 years ago. I mean, some of the things that we're still seeing now and seeing more of is things like uh, Massimo just mentioned, uh, as well as you guys, in terms of the large scale digital ID systems. And most of them have a component of biometrics, be it fingerprinting, iris scan, facial recognition. And the main purpose there is to, you know, register individuals that would be recipients of humanitarian assistance. But what we're seeing increasingly, and Massimo alluded to this, given the context in which humanitarian organizations are now operating with, you know, conflicts that last longer, they're a bit more fragmented, we're seeing this more immediate response becoming more of a longer term investment. And we're seeing humanitarian organizations 
means not just registering individuals, but to some extent providing them if they don't already have them, you know, identity documents and 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 building more of a long term social protection support, as Massimo was saying, where you're not just registering, but that also creates in a way in mechanisms for individuals to receive long-term support. And so that mirrors things that we're seeing with the digitization of social protection, access to welfare, for example, as well. I think it's important to also keep an eye out for things that we're seeing increasingly being used. And I think the, the work that we've had a chance to participating with the development of the data protection handbook led by the ICRC and, and others has been to understand what else is emerging in the sector, such as the use of big data for analyzing vast amount of data to understand maybe where humanitarian assistance is most needed. Also things like uh, cash transfer programming, which is also an issue that we'd looked at in our joint publication with the ICRC around the metadata problem to understand a little bit. And I, the example I want to give with the cash transfer programming is to show how it's not only the use of technology, but the increasing actors within the humanitarian sector, because deploying a cash transfer program means coordinating with financial institutions, with telecom operators. And I think these are dynamics that might not have been there previously. And that means that this is becoming a very crowded field and the governance or the ability to regulate how the data is being processed requires understanding the roles of obligations, not just of the humanitarian organizations, but the different actors that they're relying on for parts or if not all of the deployment of a certain program like a cash transfer program. And then there are things that are kind of emerging and many of them are still at the at the pilot stage, but we're seeing a lot you know, discussions, especially in collaboration with commercial partners, looking at AI, looking at blockchain, uh, looking at sensors. And I think that's also important to to see what, what's coming, because I think there's, as we we're talking about earlier, there's loads of lessons learned from different fields, including increasingly from the humanitarian sector. And there's definitely an opportunity to use these tools in a way that will be beneficial not only to humanitarian organizations, but to the beneficiaries and affected populations they assist. And so this is our chance in a way to, to get it right by preempting how things could go wrong and have gone wrong with the use of other technologies. And as they're looking to even more, I guess, sexy technologies to assist them in their work, how do we do that in a way that is, you know, going back to that element of protecting people. We're speaking very abstractly, and I talk about the work with UNHCR, and I talk about the frustration about how very little changed afterwards, and it's because we can't identify where this has gone wrong. We can learn from the mistakes we're seeing at national deployment in, say, Western governments and say, don't do blockchain, don't do this, or don't do AR, big data, but like in the humanitarian sector, I don't see anything failing. I don't see anything going wrong. And so are we just worried at the abstract? Like, and that's when Afghanistan, well, when the events were occurring in Afghanistan, there was immediate attention to the question of will the Taliban all of a sudden have access to all this data? And this is, this is going to be horrible. They're going to hunt people down and all that. But we don't know that. We, we genuinely don't know that. And we don't see the failures. Even though we talk that it could lead to dead bodies, we don't know. Why is that? And Massimo, as you answer to the degree that you can, 
I imagine this is what makes your job hard because you're going around dealing with colleagues who, like you, were on the border of South Sudan, who are in Afghanistan trying to do essential work. And all of a sudden, there's somebody like you around saying, no, 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 we can't use these toys. No, 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 we can't collect this data. That must make it very hard to do what you do. I think, you know, every organization has different drivers and different things that move people to really push and to do certain things. As in-house lawyer in a global bank, at some point, it was quite easy actually to persuade people that it was a good course of action to report certain things because otherwise, well, you're going to have to explain to the general counsel why we come now to face a a fine of 10% of global worldwide turnover. In a humanitarian organization or in other companies, you could actually easily just point out to rules, Article 17.2 of your of the rules or of whatever law that says you can't do it, so you can't do it. In a humanitarian organization, it, it's very different, or at least in, in, in an organization that really is really facing direct field work and that is so passionate and motivated by helping people. It really requires explaining and really... Um, taking the time to translate Article 17.2 into impact on the people that will eventually end up being affected. So just to be clear, can you describe what Article 17.2 is for people who don't know? It's just a random, random ah, number okay. taken. <laughs> <laughs> I thought maybe I didn't know something here. <laughs> no, no, no. It's just a, I'm just picking a random number. <laughs> uh, but, I was trying to make it more interesting. <laughs> I just made it more cryptic. <laughs> no, but it's, it's It's really an exercise of translating things into impact. What does it mean? And I think the challenge is it's difficult because technology is actually very complex and it's difficult to foresee how things can go wrong. You don't necessarily immediately see how a large collection of data that you think is entirely under your control actually may end up being accessible by third parties by virtue of involving third-party processors that may be under the jurisdiction of another country that has a stake in the conflict where you're working. That's not immediately obvious. You're just you're just using maybe a cloud solution and you think, you know, it's easy. I send emails on Gmail and it's the same thing. Well, except that, okay, well, obviously we're talking about a different level of maturity. Things have evolved a lot. But if we're looking really at the beginning of this wave of enthusiasm, it was easy. It was accessible. And you just see a nice friendly screen with tools that are making your life much easier and they're making you a lot more effective in the way in which you can do good things. And you don't really see who's behind that nice and approachable screen uh, that is so user-friendly. The same goes with... uh, collection of very sensitive data sets. I mean, already in the past, it was clear for us, and this is why actually as an organization, we never really adopted the use of biometric data for registration of beneficiaries. If you have extremely sensitive data, at some point, somebody will want it and will have it one way or another. And anecdotally, it's not unheard of that countries or stakeholders involved in a conflict where humanitarian organizations work at some point knock at your door and say either you hand us over all that information or you're out of the country and then you have to make that really difficult choice to have to justify to uh, uh, many people why you're leaving a country or you know sometimes it's also difficult to explain things because it's actually really difficult to know like how does a cash program 
lead potentially to the profiling of an individual as an individual of interest and potentially lead to a drone strike. In what proportion has the data generated through that cash program led to identification of patterns of behavior that are compatible with a particular political affiliation? It's really difficult for somebody to know. And we saw it also when we did the uh, the humanitarian metadata study. Not only we can sense, we know that these things are being done, but the extent to which you are directly participating in that happening, or you may have control in preventing that, it's it's really difficult to understand. So that's where the additional complication of explaining and succeeding in making it clear to the sector why certain practices are harmful. And this is where but I guess we'll probably get to that. It's, it's really important to work seriously on upskilling and uh, training, among other things. This is the strange type of geeks that we are on this conversation. So there was the story about the drone strike done by the Americans in Afghanistan in retribution, retaliation, in resolving the suicide bombing at the gates of the airport in Kabul, where... Now it's coming out from the New York Times and the Washington Post that the individual that was targeted was targeted because of the interactions he had had. And he was carrying things in his van. And he, I think he worked for a an implementing partner of the humanitarian sector. And he, he was carrying things in his van that looked like explosives. It turned out to be water, apparently. And so the geeks that we are, apart from seeing this as a human tragedy, but also a an increase in, in a warlike footing in a country that where the Americans are supposed to be changing that positioning, we also wonder what systems were in place to identify him as a target? What cameras were used and what level of granularity? Was there facial recognition? What level of surveillance implemented by the Americans is still in place that they were able to track the movement of a car around town to to the point where it gave a signature of being somebody who is suspect? And all of a sudden, we start wondering who else starts emerging as potential suspects. And the whole point is that in a war footing, when you have a potential suspect, there's no court. There's just a drone strike. Or in the case of, and just to be a little less dramatic, when it comes to a humanitarian agency working in an environment like that, there's no accountability mechanism either for you. And so there are all these mistakes that you can make and nobody holds you to account. And that, I guess that's why Article 17.2 or whatever it is, is so important to undertake. And that's essentially why we did that report together on humanitarian metadata that PI and ICRC published three years ago which was what is all the signaling data around people's lives in these vulnerable situations that all of a sudden becomes intelligence. And then we ask intelligence for who and how can we safeguard against that? We reached out to the companies at the time to say, hey, internet companies and banking companies, how do you use this data? Who do you share it with under which conditions? And will you please work with us? Because, you know, ICRC is an august institution, PI. Well, we're a bunch of rabble rousers, but still work with us. And the response from the industry was a resounding silence. It was infuriating silence. Like they, they couldn't care less about engaging with us on this question. But then... Afghanistan happens and all of a sudden Facebook comes out and says, hey, we're the good people. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. We're going to do this. That's a little frustrating. And I'm I'm sure Massimo can't possibly comment on anything regarding Facebook, but it is frustrating (laughs) to see the very people who've been asking to help us address this problem 
only now draw attention to it, but then their attention is going to be gone within two months and Massimo's got to continue to do his job. I'm just throwing that out there because I'm ranting and I'm angry. But I mean, just maybe on that point, Gus, I think the reason why we were so keen to hear from industry, but also to get an understanding from the humanitarian organizations that we've been engaging with and interviewing was not to, you know, necessarily do that big a highlight or like news story. It was really to understand what were possible risks and threats and at what moments in the interaction that a humanitarian uh, organization has with people that they're assisting, be it in the short term, immediate crisis moment to more of the longer term assistance as we we're discussing earlier, was really to understand those mechanisms, you know, what role each plays and how that fits in, not only within their work and direct relationship within the humanitarian sector, but also how that may feed in the case of companies within their commercial part of their work as well. And that's really what we're trying to to get is that information so that better decisions could be made, because if we can understand what the risk could be, then they can be a more targeted approach to some of the solutions, both that we would advocate for some of these third parties to be taking, be it banks, telcos, or some of the other platforms, as well as for humanitarian organizations to be able to make better and more informed decision. And I think that's been definitely a frustration is that we're not getting that information and it's really hindering the ability to make better decisions and to avoid some of the either anecdotal examples that Massimo was mentioning or some of the ones that have already made it in in the public domain, thanks to the work of investigative journalists or other civil society. I just want to mention maybe just a a couple of examples that I think are important to illustrate some of the harms that we're seeing, but also as as Massimo was saying, like it's it's hard to plan. Like I think it's hard to foresee what could go wrong, uh, even though there are a lot of lessons learned and maybe playing a little bit more devil's advocate. I think a lot of these actors, there's just already so much information out there that saying we didn't know just is an excuse that kind of is running out of steam and they can't necessarily rely on, you know, anymore. And some of the examples are particularly around data sharing between, you know, humanitarian organizations and governments. And and we saw that, for example, in the case of the Rohingya database that was shared then with the Bangladeshi government that then made its hands to the government of Myanmar to help with repatriation. And that might seem fine, you know, in terms of the process. Okay, these people were, you know, had to leave their homes. They ended up in a country that was not their home and they wanted to go back. That all seems to make sense. And obviously it was great that there was the support to make that happen. But I think it's questioning the how that happened and and understanding a little bit more of the context. A country like Myanmar that had been targeting the Rohingya communities for, for a long time, we ended up giving them a biometric database of all those individuals that had crossed into Bangladesh. And I think thinking like those are things that are definitely foreseeable or not in the immediate term, like there was this need to provide and register and provide assistance, but thinking about the long term as well. And there were some measures in place by these organizations to like, you know, get consent or to follow their own internal processes for data processing. But what we're seeing is actually, while a lot of these organizations now have their own data protection or privacy policy, now it's more about the enforcement side, which as we know, is very hard and it's it's difficult, particularly uh, in, in a crisis setting. But seeing, you know, there was then a Human Rights Watch report that indicated that a lot of the safeguards that should have been in place that provided the assurances to all the different stakeholders that it was 
okay to proceed with these mechanisms, it seemed that they weren't followed in practice. And I think that's going to be something coming up next. And we know as lawyers and as privacy advocates, we keep saying that we fight for a law and then it's like, okay, the next thing is ensuring that it's enforced because it's not enough to already have this policy in place. And then a, a final example, which I think indicates that it's hard to foresee. And so it's really important to make some important decision at the time that you decide to deploy this is what we're seeing unfolding in Kenya, where there's an estimated, although it could be more, 40,000 individuals that were registered as refugees whose biometric fingerprints are like on this a database, and that's preventing them from actually saying we're Kenyan nationals and they can't register as Kenyan nationals as part of the new Kenyan system, the Huduma number. And Gus, you spoke to Hakina Sharia, which is an organization in Kenya, and Ken Waitsburg, an academic from UCL a few months ago. So do check out that podcast for more information on this particular case. But I think these are examples, and some might think we're picking on the same organization over and over again, but it's a huge agency, UNHCR, and unfortunately this is happening elsewhere to smaller organization implementing partners but these are the kind of cases that have already made it to to the public domain i just wanted to pick on one of the different points that uh, you've made alex and i i fully agree actually that uh, when i said earlier that it's difficult in some cases to really understand how things go wrong that was really particularly for the beginning of the taking conscience of the new dimension we're in and indeed, now there are many examples and cases of things having gone wrong where, despite them being anecdotal, they should and they and do raise alarm bells with different situations. And I think this leads me to a very important point that I think should be clear is that the fact that maybe we don't have clear data about the number of cases. There's 73% of cash programs in the, this region that have given rise to moderate concerns of this. That's irrelevant. We know the impact that it can have if it goes wrong. And that means that we can't just experiment with things. It means that despite not having maybe on the likelihood of the risk materializing, enough data to be able to say the likelihood is strong, the fact that the impact would be so high, it's almost an application of the precautionary principle as well in risk analysis in data protection terms, means that you don't do it if the impact is potentially so high. The other thing that I wanted to mention in reaction, and perhaps at the risk of infuriating you guys even more, <laughs> is that maybe, 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 maybe it's because I'm, I'm an optimist, <laughs> which, which is what keeps me going in the humanitarian field, is, um, is the fact that for me, it's still, despite all the frustration with how long it's taking, with some discussions to drill down into, uh, into action, it's, it was great to see how prompt the response from some of these companies was after the events. And if it could be so prompt after the event, it's also thanks to the fact that there are people like you guys that have been saying these things, getting very frustrated because you've been saying it for a long time, but eventually it does happen. It's also thanks to the bilateral confidential discussions that others are having on an ongoing basis. And it's also thanks to the fact that Every company, like every organization, is made up of many different types of people. And there are many people in every organization that really do care and that you can really have a, an open and frank discussion with. And uh, so I, uh, maybe because I like to see things in a, in a, in a, from a positive angle, I think it's a difficult field, but it's not a lost discussion. I wanted us to end on a positive note. Okay. And I actually have a closing question because 
it's been, for me at least, 14 years since I started working on the humanitarian sector and, and surveillance and privacy and data and all those things. And Massimo, you've dealt with cases you can't possibly get into detail about, but that must have been horrific, but also fascinating. And I'm, I'm curious if you can leave us on a positive note that things have started to change from, say, 2007 or the 2012 aiding surveillance or the 2015 privacy commissioner's work. In your own experiences, give us a good story of how there was an ambition to do something that was probably good, that an implementation using tech and data may have been problematic, but ultimately it came to what we think is a positive resolution because, as you say, organizations are complex, full of people with diverse motivations, and you were able to get a positive resolution. Or if it's not you, some other agency was able to get positive resolution. Otherwise, people at the end of this podcast will just think, oh, my God, it's shit. Uh, let me just do some more searches on drone strikes and metadata or the uh, World Food Program and whatever crazy company they're working with next. Give us a good story. I think the good stories are, are really many, and uh, we often focus on the bad ones that do emerge. But there's thousands of great stories every day, and this is why I'm 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 still very proud of the work that we're doing overall in the humanitarian sector. One big example for me is the adoption by the SRC of the biometrics policy. We were fortunate enough of being a very prudent organization overall and maybe slow to act sometimes, which uh, when it comes to uh, policy thinking rather than emergency, when it comes to emergencies, we, we activate very, very quickly. But um, in this respect, it took us a little longer to get into the area of biometrics. And at the time when other organizations already had large data sets, we were still wondering, is it the right thing to do? And uh, at some point where it really became a question of should we start to use them for beneficiary registration and management? We thought, okay, well, clearly this is something that requires a proper reflection and discussion. And we took all the different benefits into account, all the different elements why it's important for the benefit of affected communities, for the efficiency of the organization and the capacity to deliver more with less, which ultimately is a positive impact for affected communities, why is it that we would really like to use them? What are the objectives? And then what are the risks? And how do we assess those benefits and risks across the requirements of data protection? What is the legitimacy for an organization that works in the space to use biometric data? Can we talk about consent? Is it really free and informed? If not, what else can you do? And and really, the outcome of this was, okay, there are a number of things that we could achieve with a particular type of deployment of biometrics that is sufficient to mitigate a number of the risks that we have identifying. For example, on-token use of biometrics where we don't actually hold the biometrics. This is what the biometrics policy accepted which obviously is a major constraint for a number of people that wanted to ensure, for example, technical ways of ensuring deduplication. But yet it was accepted as the right place to be in this area. And I think as part of the good story, I would complement it by saying, you know, all these reflections, all these discussions that we've been having across the area of data protection privacy for a long time have led to a tech sector that is a lot more 
attuned to data protection by design concerns, the, the concerns of getting technology where it should be. And that's where we could have a discussion with, for example, the Lausanne Polytechnic University over, okay, well, a secure use or safe use of biometrics doesn't get us exactly where we want to be because the current state of the art is not conducive to it. Well, we need to move the state of the art because we want to be able to do more with less and we want to be able to use biometrics more, but we can't right now. So how can we get there? So I hope it's a good story and it's a good story overall because really the the, the tech sector is much more able to engage in these discussions probably. That was part of our motivation back in the day of getting involved in this. And uh, that's that's a wonderful place to end. Massimo and Alex, thank you so much for your time. And thanks for letting us see how dark it can be, but also sometimes this work does end up in a brighter place. And Massimo, I'm glad you did leave antitrust behind, but uh, <laughs> we will have you back. because, And I want you to start preparing for that. And I want you to discuss in great detail the current shift of the FTC in the United States and what you think that means for the Facebook Giphy merger that's being deliberated on in the United Kingdom. That's your, that's your homework. Looking forward to that discussion. Too. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, everyone. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Alex. Thank you. Thanks for listening, and thanks to Alex and Massimo for joining. You can get involved with this topic by visiting our website and seeing all our resources on humanitarian data and protection of people in vulnerable situations by going to privacyinternational.org. In particular, you can see the joint report between ICRC and PI that Massimo and Alex referred to in this podcast on humanitarian metadata, and you could also see the report that we wrote in 2012 that's very out of date, but Massimo was kind enough to say was useful to advancing the cause of increasing protections. And that is our aiding surveillance report from 2012. You can like and subscribe to the podcast on the various platforms you use. It's also available at our website at privacyinternational.org. Generally, just come to our website, sign up to mailings, and there's even more information we're generating every day about these issues. We're also on Twitter, Instagram, Macedon, YouTube, and Facebook. Thank you, and see you next time. The music is courtesy of Sepia. This podcast is produced by Max Bernal for Privacy International.